Hi, this is Jim Lobato. I'm the president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on BizTalk Radio Show. I started BizTalk so you can have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group, which is in the business of helping the leadership of growth-oriented companies realize their potential. We do this by working with their sales force and helping those individuals discover and develop their unique abilities and then align those abilities with their opportunities. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Finding a good salesperson is always a challenge. Finding one that can sell in this economy only makes the task even more daunting. Knowing what separates the top 5% of the salespeople from the bottom 5% will give you a better understanding on how to identify and select those top performers. Dave Curlin discusses what you need to know in selecting top salespeople. Dave Curlin is the founder and CEO of Objective Management Group the industry leader and pioneer of sales evaluations and Salesforce assessments. Kerlin's insights come from the data he's analyzed on thousands of sales assessments his company runs each year on sales teams and salespeople. Also, if you'd like further insight on selecting top salespeople, go out to our website at biztalkradioshow.com and on the homepage, click on the button that says Five Hidden Sales Weaknesses. It's our report on how the five hidden sales weaknesses are costing you margins, profits, and opportunities. It's free. Just go out and download it. So let's go right to our guest, Dave Curlin. Dave, it's great having you on the program. It's great to be here, Jim. Thanks for inviting me. Dave, before we get into your new research on what the top 5% salespeople have that the bottom 5% don't have, I want to take our audience back in time, back to Curlin & Associates, which is your other company, an international consulting firm specializing in Salesforce development, and give our audience the genesis behind how you discovered you could predict sales performance, which eventually went on to become your sales assessment and your sales evaluation and your company, Objective Management Group. Well, it's kind of interesting. I, throughout the 80s, I had been working with hundreds of salespeople on personally training and developing and coaching them. And I was a pretty good diagnostician. I knew what made salespeople tick. I knew what kind of weaknesses would, would trigger outcomes, obstacles, and lack of results as well as results. And there was one particular sales call I remember that was the trigger for this. Uh, the president of the company, and he had about 30 salespeople who were technical in nature. And he said, you know, before you go and train these 30 guys, I bet, since you know a lot more about this than I do, he was technical as well. He said, I bet if you interviewed my salespeople first, that you would determine that I probably have some people who have no right being in sales. And there's probably some people here who you'd never be able to make any better. You probably couldn't train them. They'd be so resistant to change. And then there's probably a core group of people here that belong in sales and have the potential to get better, and I bet you could tell me who they are and exactly what they needed from you in order to optimize a sales training initiative. made sense to me. So I did that. And uh, the, the short story is that the results of that particular 
client engagements were probably dramatically different than any other client engagement I'd had up to that point. Because what we did was we did a training initiative with only the most motivated, uh, wired, as in they had the right DNA, people on their sales force. So the program went a lot faster because there weren't any untrainable people in there trying to derail it. You know, they weren't saying, this is a waste of time, or oh, I heard all this before, or you're wasting your money. Uh, instead, the people in there wanted to be in there. They wanted to get better, and they, they soaked it up. And as a result of it going faster and having the right people in the training, uh, they got a much bigger increase in sales from that group of people, uh, which at the same time told that president that the other people had to go and be replaced with more people like the good group. Uh, so I didn't put a whole lot of stock into what happened there. It was just an experience at that point until I was in a similar situation in another company with another president, and he wanted me to train his sales force. And I said, you know, I probably know a little bit more about this than you do, and I bet if you let me interview your people, I'd find that you had some folks here who have no right to be in sales, and you had some other folks who were so set in their ways that I'd never be able to train them or make them any better. They'd never change, but there's probably a core group of people here who uh, would soak up the training, and you'd get a great return on investment from And he said, makes sense to me. So we kind of repeated the process at that company that I did with the previous company, and the same thing happened, same outcome. So with that, you know, I don't have to be hit over the head three times. Uh, twice was enough. I said to myself, this is what we ought to be doing. We ought to be evaluating a sales force prior to starting any kind of a development initiative. And so early on, all I did was interview and make these determinations and do these uh, conceptual, conceptualize in my own head, analyses of who belonged in which group, who shouldn't be here, who wasn't trainable, and who was and what kind of help would they need until, one, I ran out of me. There just wasn't enough of me to go around. And two, uh, words started getting out around the industry of what I was doing. And there was some, some demand uh, for people wanting to know this proprietary process because of the results that were coming. So that's when it turned into a formal paper and pencil evaluation process. And, and my approach to that was, Let's not do what the behavioral scientists do. Let's not say we, we interviewed a 1,000 successful salespeople and uh, those 1,000 successful salespeople had the following attributes in common because I already knew from working with salespeople who weren't very good that they had those same attributes, the same things you could find in good salespeople you could find in bad salespeople if you're not looking for the right stuff. And at that point... All they, they had to go on were personality traits. And those personality traits, everybody that got into sales had them. So I went the other way. I said, what is it that the lousy salespeople have that the good salespeople don't have? And I, I identified weaknesses. I identified skill sets. 
I identified motivational factors. And the, the early assessments were built around some of those things so that we could actually differentiate between good and not-so-good salespeople. And there you have the, the five-minute history of how objective management and the, the, the first true sales assessment tool was built. We didn't build it off of personality tests or the previous work of behavioral scientists. We built it from the ground up for sales, by sales, with sales, and uh, that's the first step in what led it to become what it is today. And Dave, uh, what year was this? Uh, it, it went to paper and pencil in 19, formal paper and pencil. We had a couple iterations before this, but this is around 1989. So I can only imagine going back to 1989, this had to be a very foreign concept back then of you want to do what? You want to evaluate before you train? Exactly. Because most people just say, well, let's go sign up for a training course. Or they buy training by the hour or they buy it by the curriculum, one of the two. Yeah, and you know, and the company was launched in 1990. And I remember in, in the first half of the 90s, I was out evangelizing. And, you know, I'd be thrilled if 14 people showed up to hear me speak. And we had six resellers in the United States, and it was a tough concept to get across. You know, assessing wasn't new, but it was used as a pre-employment tool, and it was personality and behavioral styles assessments, and nothing, nothing existed yet specifically for the sales force. But I kept evangelizing, and I kept getting that message out, and Gradually, we caught some traction. I, I think 1994 may have been the turning point. I spoke at, a, at an Inc. Magazine conference on growing the conference. And they had, it, it just might, it might have been the right message at the right time to the right audience. You know, the, the conference was well attended by presidents and CEOs. And we had just come out of a recession. And, you know, people were looking to turn things around and, I was talking about how to upgrade the sales force, and we had an overflow crowd. There were people in the hallways watching on closed-circuit TV, and uh, a bunch of companies wanted to go through this process in 94. And the product was still kind of primitive back then, but it got the job done. You know, it, it identified what it needed to identify, even though we, you know, today it's it goes really wide and really deep, and we come up with all kinds of important findings and answers to important questions. Back then, we were answering the basics. <laughs> who shouldn't be here? Who's not trainable? And are the people who are trainable, what kind of help do they need? Dave, let's go back to your thought process when you were developing this assessment. What is it about the sales profession, that position, that behavioral or psychological assessments aren't necessarily the best way to pinpoint success in that occupation, and your discovery that an executional assessment is a much more accurate way to predict success in your role as a salesperson. Pretty close. So if we start with a personality assessment or a behavioral styles assessment, because they're, they're both kind of wired the same way, they report only what they can measure. That makes sense, right? Absolutely. If you can measure it, you can report it. 
the problem is uh, they can't measure most of the stuff that we measure because their, their, their tool, the underlying engine for behavioral styles or personality assessment uh, is either a four-dimension or a 16-dimension personality instrument. So if I try to identify some things your listeners might be familiar with uh, on a personality assessment, they've probably seen things like ego drive. You're, you're familiar with that one? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So for so, so the listeners out there, you, you can go in your company, and if you ran one of those personality assessments or behavioral styles assessments on all the successful people in the company, forget about selling for a minute, but all the successful people in the company, chances are they would all have high ego drive. They're all driven and motivated, or they wouldn't have gotten where they got. Does that make sense? Absolutely. However, that doesn't mean that those people ought to be selling. So when you, when you use one of those assessments on salespeople, you're coming up with words that ring true, but you're not really reporting what we need to know to run a sales organization. You're measuring ego drive. You're not measuring how badly does this person want to succeed in a sales role. And that example is consistent with almost everything that a personality assessment or a behavioral styles assessment measures. So they market these things as tools that can be used for a sales force. But the reality is they aren't measuring what we need to measure in order to have it be predictive or even accurate in terms of what it looks at and reports. So Dave, whether it's a salesperson on our staff or it's a sales candidate applying for a job, if we could look into their soul and say, man, I wonder if they have the right stuff, what is it that we should be looking for? Great question. And you know, if we start with motivation, right? the first thing we need to be looking at is that. Uh, how motivated with their, their desire for success, their commitment for success, uh, their, their feeling about uh, their profession in sales, how motivated are they to achieve in a sales role. And a personality behavioral styles assessment just can't measure that. The second thing we want to know is, do, do these salespeople have any of those killer weaknesses that those lousy salespeople that I was talking about a while ago, that lousy salespeople have? And if they do have any of these weaknesses, how many of them do they have? And how severe are those weaknesses? In other words, is, is that going to prevent these salespeople from performing effectively. And if we're looking at a potential candidate to sell for us, then we want to know, based on what we need a salesperson to do in our company, in our industry, selling into our marketplace with its challenges against our competition, will this candidate able to do what we need them to do. And then in addition to that, of course, we want to know, you know, generally speaking, what kind of strengths do they bring to the table? 
what kind of weaknesses get in the way, what kind of skills do they have for selling, and what kind of problems might they run into in the field. Uh, where a personality or behavioral styles assessment comes in is they'll, they'll look at, let's call them traits or characteristics. They'll look at characteristics which we measure. Uh, some of the things we measure are things like need for approval, how much a salesperson needs to be liked. We measure how well they control their emotions. Uh, personality and behavioral styles assessments measure those things as well, but they measure them in a social context. And every single measurement reported in one of those two types of assessments are measured in a social context. And the, the context are generally not transferable. They're different. So everything we measure is measured in a sales context. And, and that's why it's different. That's why we tend to measure the right things because the things in selling we can measure. And so that's why you'll see a lot of different things in our assessment than you'd see in a behavioral styles or personality assessment. And that's why you'll see some things that are the same but have contrary findings. One of the questions I get every day of the week from somebody is, yeah, we also uh, tested this salesperson using this particular personality assessment, and the findings are totally contradictory. Yeah, that's pretty typical. And, and if ours are 95% accurate and the findings are contradictory, uh, you don't have to be a rocket science to figure out how accurate those other assessments are in a sales context. They're generally accurate about people. It's not about salespeople. So, Dave, think back to over the 30 years you've been doing this, and you go back to when you started in the early 90s and then that Inc. conference where things kind of took off for your company. You've run tens of thousands of assessments since then. 500,000. 500,000, half a million pretty assessments. <laughs> it's a pretty good, pretty good sample. So over the years... What is the trend you've seen or what has changed in what is required by a salesperson to sell over the years? That's my first question. And then if you want to even extend that further, is that different given today the fact that the environment people are selling into is a little bit more difficult and has been difficult for the last year, probably continue through this year, than it has been the previous you know, couple of years? Those are great questions, Jim, and I wish I get asked great questions more often. You're an awesome host. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, in, in terms of trends, you know, I guess we have to look externally and internally. Externally, uh, the trends are that salespeople have to, have to be more consultative now. They can't get away with being transactional in a consultative world. Prospects are expecting more. Prospects expect the salespeople to be more educated about them and what they need. Prospects expect salespeople to ask good questions so that they get to the, the root of the problem and provide appropriate solutions. So the expectations on salespeople have changed. Unfortunately, internally, what we're seeing when we look at salespeople, the data shows us that salespeople themselves haven't changed at all. Uh, we, we've seen very little. And as a matter of fact, we ran an analysis late in 2009 in the heat or in the heart or at the peak 
of the recession. Mm -hmm. We wanted to know what's changed compared to early 2007 when things were at their peak. And we looked at everything. And we didn't see internally in the way salespeople looked and the way they were assessing, almost nothing had changed. The only change we saw was in sales managers and an increased attention or focus or amount of time that they were devoting to coaching and accountability. Assuming, assuming, that, assuming that that went up, you mean? That went up. Okay. Yep. Other than that, unfortunately, the the population of salespeople hadn't improved or changed a bit since the early nineties. So the marketplace has continued to evolve. Yes. And our but our people coming into the sales profession haven't. Uh, not only have the people coming in. Not only did they not look any different than the people who were coming in 20, 25 years ago, but the people who've been in the industry through this evolution haven't evolved along with it. As a matter of fact, that's such a great question. That should be a blog post. So I'm sitting here today, and I'm listening to this program. I'm a vice president of sales. i got 50 people on my, in my organization. Some of them are 20-year veterans and I got to be saying to myself right now, what the heck? I mean, if that's true. So if you're that vice president of sales, what, what do you do about that? Because I think that would be kind of just alarming. It, it, it would be alarming. And, and it's certainly beyond the scope of reality that I'd be able to look at this organization and the layers beneath me and be able to answer the questions I must have. You mean by using your evaluation? Well, evaluating the sales force would be a, a first step. Okay. But without that evaluation, I can't imagine being able to come up with the, the intelligence, the data, the action steps, even the problems to, to make these changes and to evolve my sales organization. And to figure out what has to change. So I must evaluate the sales force to figure out what's my first step and my second step and my third step and my fourth step, to figure out what my problems are, to figure out where my problems are and who the, who the problems are with. So to simplify and unravel and prioritize what I'd need to do with my sales organization, that would, that would be the priority for me for 2010. If I were a VP of sales, I would evaluate my sales organization to answer questions like, can this group execute my strategies going forward? What impacts are my sales managers having on my salespeople? Have we been hiring the right people? What kind of changes do we need to make? Uh, can Do I have people that can make these transitions from presenters to consultative types? from order takers to hunters and closers and farmers? Uh, do I have gaps in the skill set? How much better can the folks be? Which ones can be developed? What kind of help are they going to need? Where, do, where are the gaps in our sales force infrastructure? What do we need to do with regard to 
systems and processes? What about pipeline and metrics? You know, there's, there's so many challenges in a sales organization now. Where do we start? What needs to be improved? And how do we improve it? I want answers to those questions if I'm a VP of sales, and a Salesforce evaluation will give them to me. Dave, I know your company gets to evaluate thousands of sales managers and salespeople each year. And as you review that data, what are some of the new findings you can share with our audience? Maybe every six months or so, we do a deep dive into the data. And, you know, the data continues to increase. And, you know, the, the amount of data we have and what we look for in that data and how we analyze that data continues to increase. So the, the most recent dive into the data, I, I tried to identify the difference between the top 5% and the bottom 5%. Previous studies just look at what the top 5% would have in common. But as I mentioned, you know, there's some stuff that the great salespeople have in common with the lousy salespeople. So I looked at what they don't have in common and what's different. And I can share some of that with you. Sure. Let's, uh, let's look at that. Okay. Let, let's start with just this concept of who can be trained and developed. Okay. And this, this might not surprise you, but the extent to which it's true might surprise you. And that is that the top 5%, 99.5% of that elite group are both trainable and coachable. And in the bottom 5%, the percentage is zero. And that's about as disparate as it gets. And to be trainable and coachable, you would need to... Have what as a salesperson? An incentive to change. Selling would have to be important enough to you. Uh, success would have to be important enough. You'd have to have enough passion for being the best and be committed to doing what it would take to get to the best uh, in order to show some incentive to improve. So that bottom 5% is lacking incentive. So you're saying if, if I have... Anybody that would fit the criteria of that bottom 5%, any resources and coaching, training, development is falling on deaf ears, and I can't expect a return. Yeah, that's a fair way of putting it. Okay. Good enough. Interesting. Yeah, and in that category, we look separately at that desire for success and that commitment to success. Top 5%, 100% of them had that desire for success zero in the bottom 5%. 95% had that strong commitment to success. A third of the bottom percent had commitment. But when you combine that desire and commitment, if none of that bottom percent had strong desire, and 33% were committed to doing what it takes, paint this picture. Let, let's uh, put up a pole vault scenario. So you've got the goalpost up there, mm -hmm. and consider that desire is how high the bar is set. And commitment is doing whatever it takes to clear that bar. So if this bottom 5% had no desire, they're setting the bar like down at the ground. So at that point, even for the third who were committed, they're committed to basically walking over it, not 
not conditioning themselves and training themselves and practicing and stretching and getting to the point where they could clear this bar set at a relatively high level. They're just committed to taking the easy way. So even that 33% commitment is misleading without the desire factored in. Uh, Another interesting finding is that in that elite top 5%, 94% of them don't make excuses. Bottom 5%, 80% make excuses. Another, another biggie is need for approval. Now, depending on the assessment, we, we can't even be sure whether some assessments look at approval as a strength or a weakness. Now, in, in the 35 years that I've been in sales development, need for approval, the need to be liked or loved, by a prospect or a customer is without exception a weakness, period. It prevents asking the right questions, the tough questions, the timely questions. It, it allows a salesperson or causes a salesperson to take stalls and put-offs because they won't do or say anything that would cause a prospect or a customer to get upset with them, to change the way they feel about them. But some assessments think approval is a good thing because that means they'll develop good relationships. But building relationships and having need for approval aren't mutually exclusive. It's not, it's not if you have approval, then you'll be able to build relationships. And if you don't need approval, you won't be able to build relationships. You should be able to do both. So the top 5%, 78% of them don't need approval from their prospects. And in the bottom 5%, 94% of that group need approval. That's, that's a huge differentiator. Another one that's huge, just incredible disparity, is the comfort level that salespeople have just talking about money. 98% of that elite top five are comfortable having an in-depth financial conversation with a prospect about their money, about how much they have and where it's coming from and how much they'll, they'll part with. Whereas an equal number, 98% of the bottom 5% can't do that. So that's, that's a couple examples of the differences between the top 5%, the elite group, and the bottom 5%, the group that you shouldn't be selling. If I'm running a sales force today, given the environment we're in, what do you think salespeople need to get better at or bring to the table in order to effectively grow their book of business this year? going to be a recovery year. So when it comes to growing the business in 2010, focusing on growth, that means, one, looking outside the box. The business doesn't necessarily have to come where it's always come from before. So while we do want to maintain what we have and we want to grow what we have, we've got to look beyond what we have. So we're talking about diversity. 
Where are the new places we can go to find business? Yes, we can steal business away from our competition in, in, a, in a defined target market. That's what we might have to do to grow. But if our target market isn't so defined, where else can we look where it might be easier to take some of that business? So look beyond what you have. Num number two, in focusing on new business development, it's just as important now to get found as it is to find prospects. So that means using some of the sales point to 2.0 methodology, using social media, blogging, uh, LinkedIn, social networks, but not relying on that. Uh, that. That is a nice bonus. It's gravy. You can't rely on that any more than you can rely on face-to-face -face networking and rely on referrals and introductions coming in from that. You still got to go out and fill the gaps and find prospects. So there's got to be an emphasis on being more effective at prospecting for new business. And it's never been more difficult to prospect for new business. It's never been harder to actually reach the person that you want to talk to, get their attention, get them engaged, and get an appointment scheduled, whether it's on the phone or face-to-face. -face. The third thing is salespeople have to stop going in and making presentations and doing demos and talking about capabilities and value propositions that doesn't cause people to buy, it doesn't get them engaged, it doesn't create any urgency, and it doesn't identify the right solution to sell. So they've got to learn consultative skills. They've got to learn to transition from being presenters, proposers, and quoters to being good questioners and listeners and getting to compelling reasons to buy. And that will drive the rest of the sales process home. Uh, the, the last thing is that the window of opportunity in most companies, if you're selling business to business, is shorter than ever. Once you've got your decision maker's attention, you don't get a second chance. You've got to make an impression. You've got to get them engaged. You've got to get them to have some urgency about this and get them to take action. So you've got to shorten the sales cycle if you want to do business in a company right now. Not facilitate, go with a longer sales cycle and just be responding to their requests. But you've got to find out what it is that will cause them to take action to shorten the sales cycle so that you get their business. When you're sitting down with company presidents today and they're telling you that they've, you know, They've never seen anything like this before in terms of the business environment we're in. Number one comment I'm hearing is, thank God 2009's over. <laughs> oh, yeah. Amen to <laughs> Amen that. Amen to that. Even though 2010 may be a little bit like 2009, at least it won't have the surprises. But thank God that's over. And they're, they're having this conversation with you. What's the one piece of advice that you're sharing with company presidents today? Narrowing it down to one. Okay. Just one. I would say I would say that you have a unique opportunity to come out of the gate of this recovery roaring with all engines firing, with all horses aligned, uh, with, with all of them uh, armed for bear, and to completely dominate your company.
competition. If you understand the importance of optimizing, improving, and maximizing the sales organization. And a sales force evaluation will give you all the intelligence you need in order to do that. And then you can invest wisely in a training and development initiative. You can invest wisely in Salesforce automation. You can get all the right uh, infrastructure pieces in place with pipeline and metrics. And you can customize and optimize a sales process. And if you can do that in the first 90 days of 2010, you'll annihilate everybody out there. Dave, thanks for being on our program. And before you go, is there one question today that I should have asked you that I haven't? Oh, yeah, sure. And that would be? Dave, how you doing uh, with the lifestyle change you made and uh, the change in diet? How much weight have you lost? <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking about your lifestyle change. <laughs> how is that going? Yeah, it's going pretty good, Jim. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, the, the biggest part is how much energy I have mm-hmm. and how I don't fall asleep in the middle of the day anymore and how much better I feel after I eat. I used to walk around feeling sick all the time. I just didn't know it because it was normal. So what's the one thing you changed there that got feeling that good? I can't do the one thing on that. I have to do the three things. Oh, the three things then. We'll do three. Yeah. And maybe it's even four things. One, I didn't go on a diet. It's five things. <laughs> I didn't exercise. I hate exercising. I hate diets. Uh, three, I gave up flour. Four, I gave up sugar. Now, I still eat fruit that has sugar in it, but for the most part, I don't eat any any sweets. And then five, this is this is really profound. I stopped eating when I was full. <laughs> you know, I used to eat and say, "Oh, there's more." Okay, you know, it didn't matter how stuffed I was. Well, wait, I still want to have dessert. <laughs> so now I now I can actually tell when I'm when I'm full, and I go, "Okay, I've had enough." And you know, making that change. The, the, the staple of my diet, the two staples of my diet were bread and ice cream. Hmm. So when, when I said giving up flour and sugar, that, that was giving up the two staples of my diet. And the cool thing was within three days, the, the cravings for that stuff went away. And all the food I generally didn't like started to taste good. Mm-hmm. So now, now I eat healthy food that I love. And... Uh, I'm down almost 40 pounds. Well, congratulations. I'm feeling awesome. Well, this has been great, Dave. Awesome. It was great talking to you. Thanks for having me on. This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website at www.biztalkradioshow.com. Or you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. If you want to learn the strategies how to take your sales force to the next level, you can contact the performance group at 800-550-9509 or visit us on the web at www.pmgllc.net.